Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr Putin. I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think I know. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day there and welcome to Democracy Sausage, which comes to you each week from the Australian National University. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian Studies Institute. And alongside me, as usual, is Maria Tafaga. Dr. Tafaga is a senior lecturer in the School of Politics and International Relations. G'day there, Maria. Hello, Mark. How are you? I am well, although somewhat uh, chastened or, or, or bruised, I think it's fair to say, as a result of the uh, the referendum we've just been through. Uh I didn't make any secret of the fact that uh, I was a um, an enthusiastic guest voter and uh, uh, it was an emphatic result in the other direction. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think for anyone who supported the Yes campaign, it was a tough weekend. It was. It was because it wasn't just... It wasn't just, you know, sort of missed out on the on the second hurdle. You know, the majority of states, for example, perhaps got, got there on the overall vote across the nation or came close. It wasn't anything like that at all. It was... It was an emphatic defeat. Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. There's no really way to sort of sugarcoat it. And 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 to be blunt, I was surprised. I mean, I didn't think the referendum was in a position to succeed, but I was I was shocked at the 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 fact that it's come out with it. The yes votes come out with mm. a three in front of it. That, yeah, that, that was shocking. Yeah, yeah it, it it is it is a very. It went from divisive to decisive, I think, uh, was uh, one way of putting it. Um, now, look, to talk about this in a, in a, in a much more structured way uh, with some genuine expertise, I want to welcome back two professors who've been on here before. Nick Biddle is Professor of Economics and Public Policy. He's also Associate Director of the Centre for Social Research and Methods here at ANU. G'day there, Nick. Hey, Mark. Nice to be back on. Hey, Maria. Hello. And also with us is Professor Matt Quatrup. Uh, he's a political scientist, he's a legal scholar from Coventry University, right. and he's a visiting, visiting fellow at the ANU School of Law. Uh, he's a w- widely regarded as a global expert, perhaps the global expert on referendums. He's uh, looked at them all over the world, and uh, he's been on here before. It's welcome back to you as well, Matt. Thank you, Mark. Matt, I might start with you, mm-hmm. really, because um, you did predict this result. Uh, as Maria said, it wasn't a hard thing to predict as we got closer to it. The polling wasn't just fairly, um, uh, you know, fairly dire for the yes side, but it was consistently so mm. and had been there for a while. But I think you predicted it a lot further back than that for a range of reasons. Uh, yeah, I think it was November last year, and I, I have um, I have a bit of form on this. I suppose I predicted Brexit as well. It's not because I have a crystal ball or or sort of prophetic powers. It's really down to, and 
uh, we'll come back to that, I suppose, econometrics mm. uh, and, and forecasting models. And there are a number of factors that you see in referendums. If you have compulsory voting, you can knock another 7% off uh, the starting line in, in referendums, which is typically 56%. Can um, I just stop yes. you there just for a sec? Because I, I mean, I, I think I understand the point you're making there, but let's just expand that out a bit. Essentially, uh, compulsory voting, widely regarded as a, as a plus for Australia, it makes elections, uh, you know, very much contests in the middle ground and so forth, uh, you know, it's a stabiliser. But for referendums, it kind of almost works the other way, where it, it actually drags people to the, to the polling booth who perhaps uh, aren't particularly particularly engaged in a question and um yes it's interesting those so, people tend to break no if they don't understand it well they they more than 10 they be sort of 9 out of 10 would uh, would tend to break no so right. that in referendums yeah. roughly around the world you see the same thing in chile for example so they, or, these are people then that in it, many cases wouldn't attend were it not yes and then they feel if i really have to attend it has to be bloody good pardon mm. my french mm. and uh and then most of the time they have to be educated on, on things. And as a general rule, when people have to start reading up on the subject, they become more skeptical. So when you had the, the postal survey on marriage equality, that was an issue that people had made up their minds a long time ago. Mm -hmm. They knew roughly what to think about it. And therefore, if you've made up your mind on an issue, you you're less likely to be 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 swung over to the other side, but not and so. And that was when, a that was a plebiscite, and it was voluntary as voluntary. well. Yes, but it, it you know it, a referendum in all but name, really. You know, if you except that it was voluntary. It was voluntary, yes, and and also that meant that the turnout from memory was only sixty three percent or something mm, like that, mm. which is which would be high in any mm. other country. Yeah, uh, but but because probably Australians have been socialised into that. I might bring you in here, Nick. You've you've been crunching numbers, mm -hmm. right? You've done a lot of research, and of course, we've just had some fairly definitive mm -hmm. data come in in the form of the vote. And there's now a lot of work to be done trying to understand that vote and understand why people mm -hmm. went the way they went and why they did it so decisively. Yep. Tell us, if you can, uh, what the what the actual nature of the the data you've got is. Yeah, so there's a there's a kind of a range of data which you can use to try and answer, you know, uh, peel apart, see what's happening. So one source of data which people have already started using is kind of area level, uh, kind of electorate data, and I think that's um, gives you a, a bit of an indication of of how the area in which someone lives predicts their vote. And I think there's a reasonably consistent story emerging from that, although we might get into it a little bit later, it's a little bit more complicated uh, when you really start to dig into the data. But I think to really understand what was driving people's votes, uh, what some of the, the nuances are, you do need kind of individual level data, survey data, where you can ask people about a, a range of issues, some direct questions, maybe some indirect questions, and then tie their views on those issues to kind of how they would vote if you're doing it pre-referendum or how they did vote post-referendum. So for our data set, uh, we've been asking kind of a consistent referendum question uh, all of this year. So we asked in our January poll, we asked in our April poll and we asked in our August poll. This is the ANU poll for, for everyone out there. Exactly. The ANU poll uh, where we ask a range of questions. We ask about well-being. We ask about financial uh, stress. We ask about kind of voting intentions. And it uses a consistent 
uh, sample group. Exactly. Yeah. So, so one of the one of the strengths of our data is we're able to not only see how things are changing at the national level, uh, so like a repeated cross-section. And what we're able to see is how individuals are changing in their vote. And that gives you maybe a, um, a slightly different kind of take on on how people tracked over the, the referendum yeah. campaign. And, and just to, to kind of follow up, so we've been doing kind of surveys pre uh, a referendum and today actually um, we're filming on, uh, we're recording on Tuesday, uh, we go into the field for our post uh, referendum survey. And once again, the, the power of our data when, when it becomes available will be that we know what people said they were going to do in, in August, what they were going to do in April and how they ended up voting and kind of tie that to a range of, of both kind of political issues, demographic characteristics, as well as some specific specific views on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, kind of peoples and issues. Yeah, so to make it clear, I suppose, for listeners, like what's the difference between Nick's data, panel data from the ANU poll and um, the sort of analysis you're seeing in the in the newspapers is essentially Nick has individual level data. So he, he knows their level of education. He knows their preferences on a bunch of different matters. When it comes to the sort of referendum votes, like it's the absolute what people actually voted, but essentially we're kind of making probabilistic assumptions based on where people live. But we can't actually then go back to those individuals in the seat of Eden Monero, for example, and say, therefore they are old white male and, yep. and voting no or whatever, right? And, and the, the real clear example of this, which has been picked up uh, in the media, is uh, when you look at the proportion of the uh, electorate which identifies an Indigenous in the, in the census, uh, then a higher proportion of Indigenous peoples in the electorate uh, is associated with a lower yes vote. And a very simple interpretation of that would be, well, Indigenous people voted no. But clearly that's that's not the case when you start to, to look closer to individual level booth, data. Booth level data. Exactly. Yeah. And, and even booth level data is complicated because not everyone votes in their, their own booth. And uh, and also I think the you know the census is a, is a couple of years old now and, and people move and, and kind of area characteristics characteristics change through time. But our data, and we, we can get into some of the other explanatory variables a bit later, uh, it's August, so it's a couple of months before the referendum, but clearly shows that uh, Indigenous Australians were far more likely to say they would vote yes, even when you control for a range of other characteristics. So a low-income, uh, high-income Indigenous Australian more likely to vote yes than a low-income or a high-income non-Indigenous Australian. Mm. And the booth data we now see it's from, starting to from electorates well, yep. like Lingari and the Northern exactly. Territory show that quite strongly. So there was this big contest uh, in the sort of rhetorical contest pretty dishonourable, I thought, through the latter part of the campaign where there was a lot of people challenging this idea that most Aboriginal people wanted the voice, wanted to see this uh, referendum succeed. And the no camp campaign, various uh, uh, elements of it were advocating a position that uh, this wasn't true, that mm. uh, that that Aboriginal uh, Australia was, you know, cleaved down the middle, as it were, or something close to it. Uh, there was nowhere near kind of support for it. But what we see from that data in, in those uh, seats where there's a very high proportion of Indigenous constituents that um, overwhelmingly they were voting in favour of yes. So that goes to the, the point you yep. just raised, really. In those electorates where you have a high level, a high, high proportion of Indigenous voters, you also see a propensity, as you were just saying, mm. to vote no, yep. which is not 
necessarily the indigenous people, it's the others. Exactly. Now, what does that speak to? Yeah, look, I think there's a few interpretations of that. And you do see similar things in in kind of related polls when you look at uh, votes on issues with migration, uh, even a kind of... Uh, those born in a particular country, they will be influenced by the the characteristics of those in the area, even if migrants, for example, vote in a, in a very different way. Uh, so I think there's a couple of potential interpretations. I mean, one is is if you think about it, who who is likely to perceive that they're going to be impacted by uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians having a greater say over policy? Well, it's those who live in areas where Indigenous Australians live. Yeah. Now, that perception might not be based on the reality of what was actually in front of them in the It doesn't the have vote. to be based on facts. Exactly. It just has to it's be based perception. on a fear, exactly. right? Yep. Yeah. 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 So uh, another way of putting that is that people who are close to the interface between exactly. white and black Australia yeah. have lived experience of it who may themselves be quite economically marginalised mm-hmm. may be inclined to think, well, this this cohort of people's about to get something that I don't have, which was a pretty strong kind of trope through the yeah. Uh, and look, I think the the no campaign did they probably didn't use these terms very often, but did frame it a little bit like a zero sum game. Mm, uh, absolutely. And if and if you're uh, living in a, an advantaged electorate where where you're not reliant on on kind of support from government, where there's very few other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people living with in, in your area, then that kind of that that message will be far less salient uh, than, as you said, if you're relatively disadvantaged, you're living in an area where there are a largish uh, number of uh, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people in, the, in your area, you're likely to be more amenable to an argument on a zero-sum game. Yeah. Um, Maria, the, the referendum, uh, you know, the form itself, right, It's it strikes me there's this big mismatch in it. We've just seen it play out quite dramatically, which is that you have a relative, by definition almost, you have this tightly constrained binary question that is put to voters. There's, there's, there's no grades within it. You're either for it or against it, right? But the debate itself <laughs> is nowhere near as constrained. It's, it can run off in a hundred different directions, which only goes to, in a sense, the difficulty you have with analysing these things after the fact. Which is, you know, there's a there's a multiplicity of reasons why people may have gone one way or the other. Yeah, and it kind of goes to the the conversation that you guys were just having before, right? So, so I'd sort of say two things: is that you know, the the reality is is that it's it's pretty clear that a, a lot of voters weren't really clear on what the content of the question really was, and the sort of the the narrow scope mm. of, of the question. Okay, and and that's sort of reflected in the the debate that was often on many issues adjacent to the actual issue itself and the sort of discourse around that. And I mean, I think one of the things that really brought it home for me was I um, I, I was handing out flyers and then the next time I'd handed out the flyers, the, the, the flyers had changed and it had a little diagram what the voice was actually supposed to be like a really simple clear diagram and and it, and it sort of struck me that this simple message of what this proposal is this essentially this sort of uh, committee mm. right a permanent committee mm. which doesn't have any veto powers or le- legislating powers is is or what this pro- exactly powers, what this yeah. what this proposal is and and that's not really what we're we're discussing um, as the sort of everyday bread and butter events. And it kind of goes to the problem or the difficulty, which you've already alluded to, Nick, around trying to understand what this data means, because quite clearly the data is extremely noisy. 
the referendum data, the, the data from the AEC, like it's one, it's just one question. Like, did you vote yes or no on this question when we don't actually have a good measure on whether or not, like what people actually understood the question to even yeah, be, yeah, right? Precisely. So there's this whole bag of concepts surrounding this debate and that's actually very difficult to disentangle. And even when you've got stronger or individual level data, which I think we're about to talk about, even if you find correlates, right, these are, these are non-random patterns controlling for other potential uh, factors that might influence outcomes, right? They're non-random patterns in the data, which is why we think they're significant, right? Mm. You know, showing a relationship between age and and vote choice, for example. But but why it is that older Australians might have voted against the voice is 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 not directly clear from this data. It's it's ultimately an interpretation, and I think what this debate has kind of revealed is that there are multiple mechanisms at play and it's it's difficult for us to say which ones were more significant or salient for each individual voter or which multiplicity or uh, of factors were in that person's bag or which was the most salient mm. factor like i.e. which had the biggest effect size which is why the debate around what the vote means is so varied right mm. Mm. and we're unlikely to achieve a consensus beyond understanding certain demographic features, associations with vote choice. And just to add a really quick bit of data to that. Uh, so in our August survey, uh, 44% of people said that they still don't know about anything about the the voice. This was in August. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, and then we got that's that's not even the strongest view. Uh, there, there's people it was like a little under 5% who didn't even know the voice existed. So yeah. so there's Obviously, August is still a couple of months, and and would have knowledge would have picked up a little bit. But there's we can't kind of assume that that people are going into it with you know really precise views of what they're doing, what what they're voting on. Uh, so you're you're trying to it's like the nailing jelly to a wall type uh, analogy. It's it's mm. really hard to pin down what what people are actually voting on, uh, and therefore what it says about people's broader attitudes on a range of, either on the question itself or on a range of topics. Yeah, what we have is like <laughs> more likely or less likely yep. scenarios. Sorry, Matt. That's <laughs> okay. No, no, I, I was, I, I Matt's just, too much of a gentleman yeah, to just so one, 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 one tries, one tries. <laughs> I think that the uh, a lot of the blame also has to be with the political class. Mm. Referendums tend to be won if you have bipartisan support. Mm. In Ireland, they pretty much always have it. When they tried to reform the Senate, they didn't have it. It went down in flames. Mm. In Switzerland, where they also have the double majority, only six out of over 200 referendums on constitutional changes have failed because they always have bipartisan support. If you then add to that, it was a catalogue of all the things. I think I've covered now 41 referendums, my 41st referendum which makes me really nerdy. But one of the things that we always see in referendums, we have to have a credible spokesperson who is able to very clearly articulate what's going on. We had the minister who could only read from a script Mm -hmm. uh, who came across as being not very sort of passionate about it. Uh, the government decided, uh, the Yes campaign decided not to quite reveal what it was all about. Well, it will be legislated for later. Mm -hmm. So that 
also is not great. Then you have uh, to to you you have the celebrity endorsement. We know from the Brexit campaign that David Beckham came out yeah. and supported Brexit. I think uh, when we last had you on, you did a David Beckham impression. I did a David Beckham impression. <laughs> I can do that if you want me to. Uh, and and I can't do the Stephen Hawkins one because that would be rude. Yeah. Well, Stephen Hawkins also you know a lot about astrophysics, but not necessarily why you have to stay in Europe. Now you had a a the first thing I, that happened when I landed in Australia last year was that and from in a to me unknown American basketball player larger than life even taller than you Nick, um, was uh, was advocating as you think an American basketball player coming in and trying to tell that people sort of can smell that and I was you, told at the time you know sort of on, on, on by the by the spinners that this was a piece of genius this was speaking to kids uh, off the main track uh, that you know well, that's what they said with Andy Murray was came out let's do it Scotland that was my Andy Murray impression <laughs> yeah, yeah. and the only not thing so that, good that one not no, quite no. okay but I, you know I David Beckham's a bit close uh, to home, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and and the only thing that happened there was he was booed next year at Wimbledon. And here we had Qantas. Mm. I mean, of the company that was, you know, was came out in favour of this. Mm. So you had Qantas celebrity endorsements and a minister who couldn't articulate it, and not bipartisan support. So it's it's almost like, yeah. you know, if I when I'm writing a book on this, it's gonna it's gonna be a chapter on how to lose a referendum. I mean, it, it's a tick box. Yeah, you exercise. just need to line up these factors, and yeah. you can guarantee you'll lose. Um, but then I suppose the other thing which is listeners might want to know is that the um the opposition, the leader of the opposition, was very triumphalist and talking about mm. how this is going to bulldoze them into power. All the teal seats voted mm. uh, yes. Um, and as a general rule in Australian referendums and indeed referendums elsewhere, is that governments lose referendums and win subsequent elections. Yes. And it's often a thing that sort of make them focus a bit. And, and I noticed that they, they also win referendums and get re-elected as well. Or they win like referendum. John Howard did. Yes, well, John Howard was slightly odd one because he was at, at the he proposed had been a referendum, yes. but he wanted it to lose and yes. lost, and, and then he got re-elected in two thousand and one. Yes, and but but if you go back and you look at um, sort of Australian history, Menzies lost a referendum in fifty one, and he came very heavily for it. Um, Whitlam and Hawke also lost referendums, mm. Mm. but they were a little bit more sort of lukewarm, staying behind. But Menzies is a, is a, an example of a guy who really nailed his colours to the mast, yeah. and the Labour Party in the early fifties. Uh, basically got tainted with association with the communists. Yes, yes. And therefore it took literally decades for them to get back there because they had sort of consorted with, with people who mm. were unpalatable. And I think that could be the, the danger. There was a few other factors as well. I mean, you know, basically the Labour Party split and yeah, well, 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 Yes, but, but subsequent to that because then there were the sensible ones and the, the non-sensible one, if, as it were. Yeah. And I think the same could repeat itself here. Uh, that Dutton and and his associates have been linking up with people who were saying things that weren't necessarily helpful and in, in terms of looking mainstream. And also, I I think the uh, the this idea that he said, well, well, there could be a second referendum. Now he's backpedaling on that. Um, yeah, it was always disingenuous, frankly. Yes, uh, which, which and, and you could tell at the yes. time, and uh, didn't even wait forty eight hours to. To, as you say, backpedal away. No, from but you it. can now start quoting him and then say, "Well, didn't you say?" And, yeah, he, and, and well, I, I don't think he cares, Matt. I mean, I I think he's demonstrated <laughs> pretty clearly um, that uh, you know he he 
he he will say or do whatever it takes to get the headline. O- he oppositions requires. can have hubris as well, which is, I guess, what they, you're saying. Yes, they, uh, yeah. but they, they might the voters might care. I mean, oh, might, I, the voters I don't might, doubt it. The voters might care, it. but yeah. they, they just lined up six out of ten in favour of the position he was advocating. So, yes. you know, there's, but a referendum it, is is the is is where you are allowed to have your cake and eat it. You can mm. support a party and then take a different position. And I think sixty five percent of cases people want to have what I sort of call. You know the bespoke democracy. We don't want package deals anymore. We want mm. we roughly agree with the party, but then we have our own views yeah. on gay yeah. marriage or divorce or whatever. Yeah. We're, We're just going to go, quickly go to a break, and we'll continue mm. this discussion. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. When the wind veered, the smoke was driven backwards, revealing a most amazing scene. Standing Columns of Fire. To Be Continued is a new podcast that explores the rich world of lost literary fiction from Australia's past. It helps you to understand the way in which knowledge is kind of not something that's out there waiting to be discovered, but it's something that you create. To Be Continued is brought to you by the Australian National University and is available now on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back. Nick, you were itching to say something. Away yeah, you go. Look, I was just going to add something a little bit to kind of the, the political implications. So there's a the other kind of kind of factual comparison is is kind of Rudd in kind of 2010 and and uh his kind of pulling back from his, his strongly held views or strongly stated views on on climate change. The great moral challenge of yeah, the time. So right? I think uh I mean we 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 don't really know what's going to happen uh, over the next year and a half. Sorry, can I just tease that out a bit though? What what do you mean it's a counterfactual in this sense? It, it, in what an alternative uh, approach which Albanese could have taken uh mm. which was stating very strongly his his view on a voice to parliament and then pulling back and and kind of distancing. So this himself. is about whether he could have at some point during the last 18 months yeah. decided that now is not the time. Exactly. Yeah. I, well I think he could have done that. Mm. He could I, have, I think yeah. he could have I think he could have looked at the uh, um, the cost of living crisis for example and the data and what it was showing and he could have said that in the interests of the referendum itself, as well as in the uh, respect for what uh, Australian voters were clearly wanting the government to focus on, that now was not a propitious time to be going to a referendum, that the government remains absolutely committed to it, but we believe that given the economic circumstances, uh, it would become, it would each would compromise each other in the voters' minds mm. and and that they could have uh, uh, put it on hold. The, the other argument that he could have added to that was that uh, we do need to build a stronger yeah. cross-party consensus mm. in relation to this because, as, as, as we all know, as we've been saying here, bipartisanship is a fundamental mm. prerequisite for success and without it, it's just a big, long exercises. It's a pretty big cost that we've yep. just paid. And I'm not talking financially. It was $450 million or whatever, but that's the small cost, really. This this issue has been mm. sub- significantly set back by the way this yeah. has uh, been handled and failed. Yeah, so I think there's there's two parts to that. One is is kind of the what the chances of success for a voice to parliament and and also the the cost to 
principally Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people for the for the discussion, uh, which has kind of taken place during the referendum. And I, and I agree that there's kind of arguments for it against whether whether to have have kind of doubled down and pursued uh, versus kind of pulling back and finding a different time. But I do think that there is a, a risk kind of coming into whether the, the May 2022 election, uh, one of Albanese's really strong kind of arguments was, we're going to do what we said we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think it would have been politically challenging to to have pulled back from that. Uh, yeah, but, but it could have been put with the sure. election, yeah. with the election in 2025, totally right? Yeah. So it, it's effectively a first-term mm. promise, right? Yeah. I'm delivering it in the first term in the sense that we that we we're actually having the uh, the referendum um, commensurate with the mm. the general election. There's some evidence to suggest that those referendums mm. actually go better than ones midterm. I, I don't know whether you've seen any of that. Um, actually, it's often the other way around. I remember in Australia, um, not necessarily my understanding is in Australia. Is in Australia yeah, but I mean, we then, have pretty small sample size for yes, success. Yes, here, right? overall, people are actually able to uh, you know to have. To distinguish between measures and men, as we say in, in Britain, I remember mm. in, in Ireland when they had the first presidential election, where De Valera was going to be elected. He came in as president, you know, with ninety percent, and he wanted at the same time to change the electoral system to first past the post because that would be great, and that was rejected by you know significant majority mm. because Irish thought we like him as president, but we don't want him to be all powerful. So yeah. I think people are able to, which is a good thing, really. Mm. That they're able to distinguish, and, uh, and as long as that's the, as long as they're not just voting on the atmospherics of it. We've seen a lot of voting on the atmospheric. Yeah, well, in the I, last I, one we've just had. Yeah. And well, I don't know. Was he proposing we, we, a system that unambiguously advantaged him or was well, he, he? His party was by far the largest, but they didn't have a majority because it was PR. Right, so right. It, 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 it was pretty so obvious. It made sense. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but I think in, in this particular case, um, a referendum also has to be a credible answer to a credible problem. Yeah, and there, and I think it has to be. I think the ancient Greeks even had sort of theories about it and said, well, if you want to win an argument, you need to have, uh, you need to be a credible person. You need to have a a, a simple logic of why this works, and you need to have a passion or pathos, logos, and ethos is the Greek words if you want to have it. Um, and in this case, there was there, there wasn't that. It was quite sort of say, well, if we give people a voice, then they will be able to to make representations. But it's very difficult to see how that directly links to lower alcoholism and so on. Yeah, I, um, I agree. I, and, I always and, thought this was a weak link in the argument that, I mean, I understood the argument and yes. I felt that it was well, That's because you're a politico, yeah. yeah. But, but if you're the guy who's really more interested in the footy and standing down the pub and whatever, then uh, it's not quite obvious. And it had this other problem that the Republic had Maria, which was, you know, the Republic was, the, the change to the Republic was the minimalist model was simultaneously big and small, right? And this was mm. a bit the same, right? It was a significant change worth doing, but it's an advisory committee, you know? So voters were kind of wrestling with this idea that it's uh, historic, that it's uh, significant, and yet at the same time they were, if they had concerns about it going too far, they were being counselled, look, it has no power it has all it has is an advisory capacity. It doesn't run programs, doesn't do this and that. Is, yeah, is there an oil and water been, aspect look, to that? To to a degree, but I, I think it was solvable. Like um, part part of the issue, I suppose, that might have been confusing for some people was that the the act of recognition is the creation of an institution, hmm. <clears throat> not as a lot of people su- suggested a two part question. That's why it wasn't a two 
pronged question on the ballot, okay? The act of recognition was the creating this new institution that would take on this representations role, which is a word that was not explained, which has, as we've sort of talked about before, representation, like uh, it has, um, you know, voice dimensions where you say things and ask to be listened to and it has accountability functions. And the accountability bit was the bit that was never It was really, underplayed, massively. It was, was not explained and that's the, the bit where the person down the pub might join the dots, for mm. example. But I guess... I guess what actually, like before we run out of time, I actually want to dig into to Nick's data because mm. he, he's actually identified, he's looked at sort of seven different variables as to what might be driving kind of voting patterns, some of which I think have been sort of quite vent- well ventilated in the in the media and, and some of which have been sort of um, less, less so. So yeah, Nick, do you want to tell us about what you found? Yeah. So as I said, this is similar analysis to which others have been doing, but also similar kind of variables which we've included in our individual level analysis uh, kind of pre-referendum. So there's a there's a few kind of narratives which are, are really supported by the data. Uh, and one is uh, around kind of the education cleavage. Uh, and certainly we find with both our individual level data as well as the area level data that if you have if you have a degree or in particular a postgraduate degree, or if you live in an area where with a lot of people with education, then you're far more likely to to support uh, the the yes vote. So that's kind of no matter how you look at that data, that's a that's one of the the key predictors of of either individual or area level vote. Is but it then, also a key predictor of income? Yeah, so that's that's the complication, mm-hmm. uh, which is that there's also a narrative that oh, it's 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 because of cost of living pressures. It's because uh, kind of low income uh, kind of people deserted the 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 vote, and that there's no there's some superficial evidence for that. So if you just looked really simply at electorates with high income, electorates with low income, that those with high income were more likely to vote yes. But of course, we also know that the, those electorates with high income also tend to be those with high levels of education. Mm. Those individuals with high income tend to be those with high levels of education. When you take that factor out, uh, either really simply or, or, or with more complicated models, what you find is that low income at the individual level, at the household level, at the area level, controlling for education predicts a yes vote. Uh, so it's not that low income people are uh, resistant to to the to the voice. It's also when you look at kind of a range of adjacent measures, uh, which we've been talking about related to indigenous policy, that income doesn't correlate in the way which which it does. It kind of it, it really simply. So I think we uh, it is true that I think the the cost of living debate uh, where I think that was important is because of perceptions of government and perceptions of of focus. And also the reality is that the treasurer was, who is a very kind of strong spokesman for labor, he was focused on other things. And and so I think that matters. But in terms of individuals who are more likely to be affected by cost of living pressures being less likely to vote yes, I don't think the evidence supports that. Mm. Well, I think the argument there in in, in the political uh, discourse around it was that the issues like this, which are kind of abstract for most people, mm-hmm. like, as the voice was, tend to tumble down yep. 
the list of of preoccupations mm. when you're really struggling to pay the mortgage and you've got school fees coming up or or or, or you know the car needs uh, repair or mm. whatever it is and and so people are are hurting out there in the suburbs right yeah and i think that and affects- then they start to resent the idea that there's this sort of Domin every time they turn on the television sure. or the radio, there's this debate going on, which isn't about that. I think possibly it 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 kind of affects kind of issue salience in in that uh, people uh, have other things on their mind. But if you look at the most the strongest no campaigners mm. uh, and the strongest no voters, they weren't low income either. Uh, no, so if you have time to to care passionately about an a, an issue, then yeah, then then that's or if you have the 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 feeling that that you're in a position in society where you can strongly argue your case, then I think you you fall to the mud to to the extremes. And but I, sorry, Maria. so you basically it sounds like what you're arguing is that that sort of socialization processes that pre-exist this vote are likely to be more impactful, right? Which yep. relates to your results on partisanship. Yep. Why don't you walk us through those? Yeah. So if you if you said you would vote uh, liberal, either uh, individually or if you live this in this is a, in the ANU poll, by the way, the panel data. Sure. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. So so, but it, it it holds with the electorate level data as well. So controlling for these other factors, liberal electorates less likely to vote yes. Liberal voters less likely to vote yes, and that's even when you control for uh, you throw everything in the model. Uh, you know, party identification still matters, but the the wrinkle which I think is interesting is that it's not just liberal or coalition voters which were less supportive than Labor. Greens voters are less likely to vote uh, yes, uh, and Greens electorates when you control for education in particular less likely to vote yes. So I think it was. Partly a an issue with uh, the the lack of bipartisanship, but I think it's also it was a Labor identified position, not a not a, a cross party identified issue. So I think we can we can certainly kind of reflect on the influence which Dutton and and Senator Price and and others had, but I think we also need to think a little bit about how it, it was somewhat tied to a particular party. And I think that's a, a, a stronger than than just a coalition Labor story. Your, your, your data shows that um, there was, or, I mean, we know, right, mm-hmm. the general opinion of Australians, uh, say, a year out from mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the, the referendum was support yep. for the proposition. Now, that was pretty soft, but it, it was around the exact reverse of what yeah, we yeah. saw yep. in the end, right? What does your data show about what happened to people who had voted liberal but yep. had said they were yeah, they were favorably it. inclined? Yep. Uh, they were the ones who were most likely exactly. to be coaxed away from the yes camp. Yeah, so that's an even stronger kind of argument about the the impact of the campaign. Uh, mm. So even when you focus on people who in in January said they would vote yes, and and so there, I guess that's people who are predisposed, uh, who would have a uh, kind of soft support. Then throughout uh, twenty twenty three, they were the the, the group uh, controlling for other factors who are least who are most likely to say they to, most likely to have changed to traverse exactly yeah. 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 But, but I think one of the things I noticed in uh, in the data, I think it was news poll had a date um, poll that showed that more women voted mm-hmm. no than men, which is which is. I mean, I don't know if your data shows the same, but in 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 all the other 
for want of a better word, populist referendums yeah. like Brexit or Scottish nationalism or, or immigration referendums in Europe, it's been consistent that men have mm. voted in the more populist way. Yeah. I'm not saying that voting no here was populist, but it was certainly had a, a, a whiff of that. Yeah. And I think that is an interesting... Uh, so, so certainly it's counter to our data up until August. Yes. Uh, and I think that news poll vote, that news poll which you're referring to is is closer to the eve yes. of the of the referendum. So for us, there was a, a a lower level support and a greater drop in support for males up to August. Mm. Uh, so what I think we uh, it is needed is is once we've gotten, I think that might be one of the, Kind of instances where you have a, a quite a late change yes, if, yes. if you kind of marry up the news poll and, and our mm. data, but we won't really know till till post. Right. So the the problem we're looking at that at the at the electorate level is that there's very few electorates where you have lots of males or lots of females. So that's one which is hard to pick up mm, yes. with area level data. Mm, yes. One of the uh, variables, I think it's the third variable, is the one where you control for age, right? So, yeah. And you say the, um, the age range of electorates varies from an average of 38.3 in the youngest electorate to 54.4 years in the oldest electorate. And not surprisingly, I guess this seems uh, quite intuitive, uh, electorates with an older population tended to be less likely mm -hmm. to vote yes. Yeah, and I think that's that's both consistent with our individual level data, but I think it's also kind of uh, consistent with views on what's perceived to be a risky proposition. And so I'm curious, Matt, as as, mm. as to whether that uh, has. I mean, I know the impact of age is is in, in a bit of flux mm. uh, with regards to to kind of political spectrum. But I'm curious, yeah, as to as to whether that finding, which was consistent across. Uh, mm. Our data, news poll data, and and also the the electorate data, whether that's hold in other uh, kind of referendums as well, or, or, or completely consistently yep. so. But they also the older demographics tend to be voting more for conservative parties yep. or parties of the right, mm. and the fact that they take the positions of the parties of the right. Um, I mean, there's not a perfect correlation between party identification sure. and, and referendum voting, and which is one of the fascinating things. That's why uh, I'm proposing that people should lose the vote when they hit 60. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you're saying <laughs> that until you reach 60, and then you're yeah, well, quite a bit. Yeah. Um, uh, but but you're right that that it is it is partly to do with party. But even when we kind of look at a Labor voter and then look at the age distribution or a mm, Labor electorate, yes. that I still think age uh, kind of was was a key explanation. I mean, there's some fascinating research that I've been involved in where we do brain scans of people and mm -hmm. we try to figure out if there are parts of the brain that are more active mm -hmm. when you grow older and you mm -hmm. can actually see that but mm -hmm. that's that's for a discussion later sure, it's another, it's a, yeah. a, a um, but also idea. that interesting that sort of research there's quite a lot of that research mm -hmm. with and that comes back to some of the stuff that you showed normally people show more empathy if they live in multicultural yep. areas uh, and that's quite consistent you've seen that in in american mm -hmm. and data and what is interesting here as long as they're not bicultural well, quite, yes. yes. Um, but what is interesting here is that we have people who live in areas with lots of, of indigenous people who tend to be more likely to vote no. Yeah, that's kind of And that's contrary to what we've seen in, in sort of the micro-level data. Yep. And that is um, at some level disturbing. Yeah, and and you're right. So in the when you look at views towards migration, uh, the those who are most strongly against kind of um, high levels of migration tend to be those who live in areas with fewer migrants, even if they yes. are born in in that particular country. I think that's consistent uh, mm. across across countries. So yeah, I think it's a it's 
What we do need to answer that question, I think, is is where we start to overlay your individual characteristics as well as the characteristics mm. of the area in which you live, and I think that's that's going to start to answer some of those questions. Yeah. I mean, the re- the reality is with, with with a variable like age is that it is it is particularly in this context it, it can be a bit challenging to interpret, right? Because you're actually talking about potentially quite a few different socialization processes mm-hmm. yeah. that are happening to people over the course of their lives, which might actually be really shaped by where they live, yep. right? Comparative to others, you might be more likely to be shaped by income because of your overall life chances yep. and so on and so forth. And it could be changing too because well, there's some precisely. research showing that younger people are tending, I think CIS or someone like that came out with some research showing that younger people are tending to move less quickly to the to the right of the spectrum mm. than they used yeah, to. Yeah, because they're not yeah. going through the same socialization mm. process of mm. acquiring property yeah. and becoming invested in having yep. property, right? Yeah. Which, which is like one of the drivers, one of the mechanisms that links older voting to conservative property yeah. mm. yep. reinforcing parties, right? But we can kind of sort of see how um, feelings around property acquisition and like not wanting that taken away might play into the referendum debate mm-hmm. here. Or we can kind of see how other sort of socially conservative positions over time might play into how you might view this voice proposition, your perception of risk. And I mean, like the partisanship thing is clearly a big one and it clearly explains an awful lot. But the effect sizes, right, of these potential alternative mechanisms and, you know, we haven't really even discussed um, the role of, of, of racism or at least anxiety mm-hmm. um, around race. It's it doesn't. It's not difficult to believe that if you are older, your socialisation and your ideas and thinking about race and indigeneity are likely to be quite different yep. from other people. If you don't live in a big city, you might be exposed to different narratives or, a, a, you know, fewer Contra narratives to mm. what you grew up with. Mm. We can kind of see how all of these things might not be the driver of your your vote choice in an explicit sense, but maybe influencing how the the other factors that might be important to you it might color those. Yeah, look, I'm a, a pretty strong believer in the effects of schooling, uh, and and you know the if you if you look at the the information which is available uh, in schools now, uh, both through uh, kind of the Reconciliation Australia and their in their programs, uh, that the the exposure to uh, issues related to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians, the understanding of history, uh, is far different and and far richer for those. Those who who finished their schooling in the last couple of years, which would be the the younger voters, compared to those who who kind of went to school when when not only were the was the framing quite different, but also where just the level of discussion was far less. So I think that's that's all kind of caught yeah. up in. Yeah. I mean, I'm I, in I, my mid thirties, and um, I think the only thing I learned at school about Indigenous affairs were, were Dreamtime stories and how sometimes an Indigenous person helped or didn't help an explorer. Like hmm. you know, that's yeah. not. That's and, and, really... I, and I didn't get the dream time. And I'm yeah. older than you, right? And I didn't get the dream time stories. I just got the explorers. Matt, um, let's bring this back to to what you've been doing recently, which is you did a bit of a sort of a qualitative tour of the of the nation. Yeah, the, and the, you the... and you spoke to people, and you got, I guess, you got some first-hand uh, sort of explanations of, of some of these attitudes. Yes, because I, I met a lot of people who said before, this is our Brexit moment. So and, you sort of and, went and, from, and Tas- what did you go, from north to, to south? To, or? to Tasmania, right. yes. North uh, to south, so, yeah. Yes. And so not the, the breadth of the country, but but 
pretty consistently I met with people that I would have expected in a sort of not to have populist views. And I think a lot of people said it was very divisive and so on. Mm. It wasn't as divisive as Brexit. I mean, Brexit, a politician was killed. Um, yeah. it, it, it was much more so. And you get the sort of like the, the, the nursery nurse and the pharmacist and people who typically would be educated and, and mm. so on. And so saying, well, I might be voting yes, but I'm not quite sure about it. Mm. A lot of the things I sort of heard from people was, so I didn't get the, I mean, previously I'd actually done the same tour and I only met, ever met one person who admitted to voting for John Howard, mm. who is a, a used car salesman from Toowoomba, which is kind of what you would expect. But here you get not just the used car salesman, uh, but also people who wouldn't normally that and i think the the typical one was that sort of you know sort of fairness was always yeah. coached in that and say well they have more than the average share of uh, members of parliament why do they need an extra voice and that's sort of like and i said well don't ask me and it's just i'm just well it's a bollocks argument for a start but anyway. well, well possibly but I mean, <laughs> far be it for me to 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 use such terms here on, the, on, on air uh, my mother might be listening to me um, um i apologize yeah, that's so, fine yeah. that's fine mark uh, i'm not australian i know they're different in linguistics, but I think what what I felt was the uh, the willingness to actually admit to this, and then, but at the same time, um, Tweed, who's just on the sort of the Queensland um, on the border, uh, on yeah. the border, Tweedheads, yeah. Uh, yeah, Tweedheads, yes, um, and somebody said, I'm I'm going to vote no, but I'm not going to share it on Facebook for for fear of the hate. And so the hate sort of would go both ways, and I think there was a lot of sort of sensitivity, and I think in a in a way i mean again far be it from me to say this but i think the australians have become a little bit sort of sensitive of, of debate you haven't had a referendum for a long time and when we had the one in scotland it was a bare knuckle fight would you had the brexit one was a bare knuckle fight and this as referendums goes was you know there's a lot of disinformation a lot of sort of people calling the other ones idiots or racists and what have you but it that's part of politics, and I well, was what, what got me was this sort of you know you, you mentioned in your opening words really that about this question of divisiveness. I mean, mm. a question is by definition you know two different options. Right? Yes, there is you can divide over that as a as a as a group of people, right? In and of itself, that division is not unhealthy. That is the process. Yes, and yet it became used. Divisiveness was a pejorative in this debate. All the way through, right? It was right? deployed very cynically. It was deployed mm. cynically by mm. the people who chose to not deliver the, the bipartisanship yeah. and then use the fact that there was disagreement but equally, as an argument against there might it. also, you know, agree not to, I mean, there has to be a meeting of minds. And I think what we've seen in other referendums, like the Federation wouldn't have come into being. I mean, Nothing New would South get done no. in this country. And New anymore. South Wales actually rejected the first constitution and then they, they tweaked it a bit and mm. they voted yes. Mm. And in Ireland, uh, they talk about the neverendum because they vote yeah. no the first time and then they tweak it. Yeah. And I think what is, and then you overcome those differences. And I think Australia, what what is now the, 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 the challenge really, and Peter Dutton said that we just have recognition. He has to be held to that. And now they, they have yes. to come back to, to finding a consensus that everybody can agree to, like they did in, in New South Wales when he came to Federation, like the Irish did when I think three times over they rejected part of the European legislation. But so I, I think the difference is, Matt, is that this question, like the 1967 question, is not about you know technical stuff about how we uh, administer Parliament or whether or not we join a, a European community, right? Oh. It is essentially 
a, a moral question about amending a wrong to a to a group of people that have suffered disproportionately in in the country, right? And so that is one of the reasons why the Yes campaign was structured the way it was, and why you know the emphasis on bipartisanship was so important. It wasn't just to see it succeed; it was because it was supposed to be a bringing to kind of together mm. moment, which is why it was such a a modest proposal. Yes, right. Well, which was supposed to be to have an a lowest more common proposal, which is just recognition. And I think everybody yeah, could live with I that. Yeah, but I think the problem with that is is that you know Indigenous people have explicitly yeah. rejected that. So it's it's and actually bear in mind, dead in that the water. Was, that was explicitly rejected in 1999. It, it was yeah, the second question. Had, you know, that well, was that just, was more the sort of the mateship one, and John Howard sort of. Well, it was it. it was recognizing uh, Aboriginal people as the first peoples of the nation, yeah. but uh, in a yeah, as you say, in a kind of a rhetorical sense, in mm. a preamble to the constitution. Nonetheless, the ACT voted yes for the republic; it's the only jurisdiction mm. it did, but it didn't even vote yes for that. No. That was defeated. But then maybe in every it's time to revisit every... that one. I mean, Ireland they voted. Do you think mass... it should have been two questions, like as in the, I think the, it should the have been, question and I think here? The, the second one two. would uh, just recognition. I think. I mean, I'd be interested to see the polling, but I think the polling suggests that people would vote for recognition, which is a small, meager step and so on, maybe not good enough, but sometimes you have to take those steps and sometimes you have to then learn to see that that's okay and then you move on to the next one. And I think if you want to have some, you know, either you leave it here and people feel, you know, it just, you, you know, becomes more divisive and and more entrenched or you find something that people can just about live with, like political compromises or, or agreements uh, 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 that you I, can I think, live with. I think with. the reality is, though, is that it's quite conceivable that a bipartisan pathway could have been found on this proposition. It is possible that it couldn't have been done this term for the reasons that you've already discussed, but it was the previous, it was the coalition government that put to bed simple constitutional recognition and set up a process to support this process. So yeah. I accept what you're saying, Matt, and, and that might be the way forward. But I, I, I don't think, you know, like not doing the, the like recognition through an institution is, I think, a much stronger counterfactual as to whether or not that was, it would have been politically pal palatable. Like I just, I don't see that going forward and, and, you know, and, um, Albanese does have some responsibility to bear here because he he couldn't find a way to get Dutton to agree. Perhaps there was no way. I don't know. Perhaps there was no way, but perhaps there was. I mean, perhaps there yes, was. Yes, I agree. I think that uh, it was. I think there was a lot of political sort of bravado and traditional role playing of parties here. Um, governments, you know, have a majority. They see themselves as having a mandate, all that sort of thing. And we see this with the way the PM has spoken about it. I promised to do it. I will do it. I did do it. That's He's even saying that now. I didn't do it as a matter of convenience. I did it as a matter of conviction. That was his line in Parliament. And yeah, there's also opportunism on the other side. I mean, John Howard in 88 was against trial by jury. I mean, that's like one of the most... <laughs> I mean, fought against that in a referendum. And of course, the referendum was lost and he convinced people that was going to be terrible and then they lost the election. So, so opposition parties in Australia tend to be more obstructionist in, than other places, which if, if I can make mm. a comparison. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Look, there's so much more we could talk about, but we've run out of time. Thanks so much to both of you um, uh, for for being here, Nick Biddle and Matt Cortrup. Okay. And thank you, Maria, as always. Pleasure. 
That's Democracy Sausage for this week. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this discussion. Frustrating though, it no doubt is, because I'm sure there are a lot of people um, wanting to sort of chime in as you're listening and make alternative points. There's a, there are many, many perspectives here and uh, the, the data crunching will go on and we'll learn more and more about it. And Matt, you've got uh, a whole other whole other sort of um, sample in your in your uh, armory of, of uh, referendums to uh, to talk about when you travel around the world. And yeah, I'm going to go on to the next referendum. Yeah. yeah. Do we know who that is yet? Uh, no, there was one in Poland over the weekend that I, but I couldn't attend that one. But um, <laughs> you can't but, be everywhere. No. <laughs> no, that's right. All right, that's Democracy Sausage for this week. Until next week, bye. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching fashion trends, pep talks where we give advice, mental health moments, and games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>